Man, the only reason I'm so late is uh, I did a workout and I can't stop sweating. Don't worry about it. I'm, uh, I was totally walking around the house. I'm standing in front of fans. I'm trying to get to, like, I'm still, you can see, I, I, yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah. still just freaking flush. So I'm sorry about that, man. <laughs> no, man, it's all good. It's all good. Don't worry about it. These things happen. It. Man, it's been a long time. When I reached out to say, hey, do you want to have a chat again? I worked out that we met in 2007. No shit. 2007 at your gym. Wow. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. And then it was sort of only online stuff, mainly through Becca with Whole Life Challenge. Yep, yep, yep. I keep connecting with these people again, and and I'm thinking it's been a few years. (laughs) That's right. That's that like just proves we're decades. way older than we than we're way older than oh, we think. Oh, doesn't it? What? And uh, so, uh, in a rare kind of moment of clarity for myself, I thought I'm going to read your bio just to remember what you've done because it's a lot of stuff. And yeah, it's given that it's stuff. more given that it's more than a decade since we've talked, I better update my knowledge, right? <laughs> and and it was like 2004. You got into CrossFit. Yeah. So yeah. that, I can remember that was crazy. It, I found it in 2005 and affiliated in 2006. Yep. Yep. And, and there were three. I was, I was at the, I found it in two, the beginning of 2004 and affiliated at the end of 2004. Ah. So it took, it took me almost a year to get it all done, but, um, but it was the same calendar year. Yeah. I think I sort of, I probably would have had the same period of time that ran over into the next calendar year. But there were three. Yep. I was the third, I think the third affiliate in Australia. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Well, you know, and it was so small for so long. Mm. You know, from 2004, I don't think there were 100 affiliates in no, there weren't. Yeah, like 2008. I mean, I think it really kind of exploded in 2010. Yeah, yeah, it did. I was around 70 worldwide i'm pretty sure because i remember you could see the list on the hq website yeah right right and there was like all the always a celebration when someone new affiliated there was a the online community got really excited and you knew everybody that was there yes everybody everybody knew everybody else it was cool yeah yeah it changed here i mean it would have been order of magnitude different in the states but it changed here I don't know when we got into sort of the hundreds of affiliates and then yeah. new affiliates were not interested in the people that came before them. And I'm like, no, oh, they right. Right. This is changing now. This is changing. And, this is different. And they weren't, in, they weren't interested in conversing. They weren't interested in asking questions. They weren't inter- interested in, you know, I remember when people started showing up in the gym and all they cared about was going to the CrossFit games and, you know, you looked at them and I mean, I did my best to, to, to stay neutral yeah. But it was just so funny, you know, these people that would come in that would, um, you know, have visions of grandeur. And then I put them through the baseline workout and, you know, they'd be puking in the corner by the time we were done. And I'm like, okay, another one, yeah. another one bites the dust. <laughs> yeah. This is a different beast. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's always, it's like when people watch something like Ninja Warrior or even yeah. just something that seems simple and don't get me wrong. It seems simple. And it's not like rock climbing, bouldering. Yeah. Right. Right. It's until you have an understanding of what goes into that. 
Did you were you uh, did you ever order the DVDs with uh, Dave Lees and um, Greg Amundsen doing Helen and Cindy and Fran and Chelsea? There was a DVD. I don't, no, I, I didn't get the DVDs, but I'm pretty sure I saw most of that online at some point. Oh yeah, like really well, sure early days. Sure, it was online, but when I first started, they weren't posting videos. No, on the, it wouldn't have been. Insight. It was all pictures. And yeah. you could order the DVD, DVDs, DVD of these guys. And, you know, I saw the records on the, on the, in the um, forums, you know, the records mm -hmm. of these times. And they just, they didn't seem possible. The numbers, no, it didn't make no. sense. You know, I would do Helen and I do it in like 11 minutes or 12 minutes or 12 something. Minutes. I don't even, I don't remember yeah. what my time was. And, uh, and when I got that DVD and I saw, Greg Amundsen do it at the track with uh, kettlebells and the pull-up bar at the track. Ugh. And he did it in like 705 or some ridiculous number. You know, mm -hmm. like at seven, if at a seven-minute Helen, you're doing the 400s at, you got to be doing them in 130s, you know, and, you know, 130 to 145. Yeah. And, that, and, and that doesn't And then the recovery to swing that bell afterwards yeah. that's what always got me okay yeah i can appreciate that maybe you can run that fast but how do you recover yeah the there's no there was no there was no recovery there was no recovery you just go you know that's for crazy. seven and a half for seven minutes that was always <laughs> my that was my favorite crossfit workout of the original group i could just i loved that workout i mean Ooh, I yeah, helen. yeah helen yeah 21 kettlebell sinks 12 pull-ups and uh 400 meter run yeah mm. yeah mm. Good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's no escape. But it's been a while for me since I've really done CrossFit. I uh, yeah, same, same. No, no more. You know, like I stopped really. I stopped buying into the main site rhetoric and you know all that craziness. Probably like 2013, 2012. Well, I but, sold uh, my I sold my gym in 2013, so it would have been very similar time. Yeah. And then we started doing our own stuff. We started creating this programming that was very, um, you know, pre-test, train, post-test, and it was much more balanced and, and much less hard. Well, it was hard some, but much less hard. And then Kenny, Kenny Kane, who bought my gym in 2015, took that to the next level and he continues to do that. And, um, but, you know, people that are doing, looking for hardcore CrossFit, it's not even, it's not even in the ballpark. It's hmm. it's a really well balanced fitness program that uses functional fitness as its foundation and teaches the you know gymnastic movement and and uh, um, strength and Olympic Olympic weightlifting some um, yeah but it's not what you'd find on CrossFit Main Site. It's back to the main that those key ten principles of fitness that we were all yeah. attracted to at the start. For the, was, for the common person, for the yes. common, for yeah. the commoner. I, I wouldn't say exactly for the commoner, but more commoner than not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can even re remember talking to Glassman after the first one or two games, you know, before the, when the games that, you know, the first one or two were kind of a celebration of what CrossFit was. I think it was a bit of an investigation of what's possible Yeah. before it yeah. got corporate and it got sort of almost, it became about competition and winning and all of that kind of stuff yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Money and money and prestige. But I can remember he said to me, even early days, I'm not sure that this is what I want it to do. 
he didn't he never liked the games he didn't remember mm. he would never stand up and talk he would never take the stage he would never um i mean if he did it was because somebody forced him they they turned the cameras on and then they said mm. okay there he is stand up you know and he'd stand Missed up the for guy and you know it was always dave's thing and yeah, dave's yeah. experiment and um uh you know the sport of fitness was always a good tagline but yeah it's a great tagline it, it's not really I get in trouble when I say things like this, but I, it's not really a sport. It just isn't. It's, I think it's, it's okay uh, to say that. And if anyone kids, gets triggered, bad luck. My kids don't do it as a sport. You can't go in the backyard and play it. You, you sports, sports, you have an element of play. Field mm-hmm. hockey and football and basketball. And where's the play? <laughs> um, yeah. We used to do local... Ugh crossfit competitions but i wouldn't have even called it crossfit it was more like of a a get out and use fitness in some kind of functional fun way yeah yeah and and i can remember once and i won't i won't mention which affiliate it was because it's so long ago it doesn't matter but we did uh we we looked at okay accuracy is part of it coordination is part of it we never test these things so we had a target thing with like little bean bags you know that you would play with in a in a primary school setting like as single figure children. So it's a bit of fun and it's unexpected. And you had to do some capacity type work and then throw these things and concentrate. So it's kind of like biathlon, right? You'd go for a ski and then you'd have to shoot straight. Right. The next competition's at another affiliate and on the wall, there's CrossFit Victoria egg and spoon race. Huh? <laughs> That's kind of cool. Yeah, but what's the point? Like, are you trying to say well, that it wasn't CrossFit? I don't care. You you clearly yeah, don't. Right. You don't understand the concept of fun, play, and testing capacity across broad. You know, like why we got into it before you even knew it existed, and that's kind well, of the, that's I what it became. CrossFit, I th- I see CrossFit as a training system. Yes, to train for sport. You know, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think so. And and sport was always. You know, I used to talk about this ad nauseum to the new people that would come into the gym because when, you know, when you and I were first doing it, nobody knew what it was. So mm-hmm. you'd have the same rhetoric over and over, over and over. And over. <laughs> Press play on the, on the tape recorder. What is <laughs> and I used to say, you know, um, I, I lost my train of thought. It, 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 was a, it, was a, it was a training system for, it was a training system that incorporated functional movement that trained you to go out and do the functional things that life calls upon you to do. Yes. And whether that's a sport or it's, uh, you know, being the military or being a firefighter or running away from a dog that's chasing you or whatever. And those are the applications. And um, I think it just kind of felt the sport of fitness kind of, it just kind of fell into it. I, I don't know that it was premeditated or thought of. And it's, I, I mean, don't look, think I'm, it was. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from, what it's become it's just to me not really a sport you know mm. i don't no, know i could yeah i i agree with all of that and and when it started going down that path and it was less for the every person in terms of branding and and what people saw online I, there was a shift in even in our gym yeah yeah because the 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 more common person wouldn't come in anymore yeah right they, they would go to some other gym. They'd go back to the personal trainer or they'd go back to the treadmill in the, in the big gym. So. Yeah. I mean, when, uh, so, you know, 
you know how close we were to the physical location of the games in 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 Carson, right? We were about on with no traffic on the 405, which is when the games were in LA. Um, we could get there in 20 minutes on a good. I, I did not realize it was that close. Yeah, it was that close. Now, most of the time in LA, it's 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's but a, that's it's, you it's an idea a concept. Travel yeah. times a concept. Yeah, exactly. And um, we were in the games, so we had a team in the games in 2011. Yeah. And we went to close the gym the weekend that we were competing, that our team was competing in the gym. And we got so much pushback from the membership. Like, why isn't the gym? We said, your training is to come down to Carson and, and cheer on our team who's competing against all these other teams in the world, which was, was a huge deal to make it to the games and to qualify for the yeah. games. And um, we, I mean, we, I think maybe 10 of our members came and we had 300 and some members. Wow. <laughs> so, no you know, it just tells you, yeah, it just tells you how, you know, I mean, people would, if it wasn't too far out of their way, they might get online and watch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but to me, that was a, the, that was a very clear sign that, that the games was just a, a, a fun event for the very, very tippy, 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 tippy top of the spear. And that's yeah. really, that's really it, you know? And I think what you saw was a lot of people, the whole, the whole sporting upbringing in America, and I would say all of North America, probably, definitely the United States, is so different to the experience in Australia. There's, mm -hmm. not, there's not a high school scholarship, collegiate scholarship system here, really. Like, there's, just, there's just not a call for it. So yes. if, if people want to go into professional sport, professional team sport in Australia, it's via local teams and then representational systems and then state systems and it maybe centers of excellence, but you don't get these guys and girls who've gotten to semi-professional yet elite status by the time they're 17, 18, 19. And then maybe they don't make NBA, NFL or any other league, but yeah. they're already physical specimens. And then they find something like CrossFit and it gives a skewed idea of what's possible. Like these guys and girls have been doing this since they're six. <laughs> it's yeah. like, totally. it's like trying to compete against a Chinese weightlifter who's yeah. started lifting a bar before they could walk. You know, like, or, the gym, or a gymnast, you know, like same, same yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's skewed because it, this, this person wasn't built by CrossFit. Right. They adapted to it. Right. And it's, it changed it. I, I see that in mixed I mean, martial well, even uh, Matt Frazier, you know, like he came from oh. he was a wrestler. He, I mean, he did all kinds of stuff before he did CrossFit. It just, He's amazing. he just was able to do, he was an Olympic weightlifter. He, you know, he did all these skills and then mm -hmm. he's just got a huge engine in, in his lungs and metabolic system. And um, ridiculous what people can do. Yeah. 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 We don't well, have to was... talk about CrossFit this whole time. No, <laughs> we want... I'm sh oh, no, no, we'll move off. Don't worry. Do you know, on this whole podcast so far, so this is episode 16, I don't think I've even spoken about CrossFit. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't think so. And well, it's, it's really funny. I mean, considering our roots, you know, it's not a surprise to me that we start there for sure. So No, no. Uh, well, it all started from me saying it's 2007. I can remember coming to your gym and you were on the way out and you're like, I've got something sorted out for you, Adam. And I was like, oh, fuck. This is going to be great because this is like affiliate owner to affiliate owner this is going to be painful and i'd i could only get to a class that was for the novice level 
and the workout was written up on the board. And I thought, oh, that's challenging enough because I'm like a day off the plane, or whatever. Yep, yep. I wasn't in tip top condition. And yep. you said, it's all right. You just double everything, Adam. And, then <laughs> you walked- and you walked out. <laughs> that's what we used to do to each other. Did you do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I finished mid-pack. <laughs> mid-pack with all these newbies. So I wasn't first finished, but I did double it. It was I can't remember what it was, but I can remember that all of those numbers, just double them. Oh, great. I remember yeah. one day, I don't know what gave me this idea, but there was somebody visiting from, it might have been Australia. Who the heck was it? Anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, the workout of the day was AMRAP 30 pull-ups that's it (laughs) i i mean i don't know how many pull-ups i did but you know you got to be careful with rhabdo with that shit but my hands were a mess it was yeah it was it was crazy i mean that was back when you just just didn't work it out you didn't know any better you just were like okay let's figure it out let's do it what's what's possible it was the wild west here when i started because there was i was in melbourne it's Fiona in North Queensland. So that's. It might have been Fiona. It might have been Fiona. That might have been the workout of the day when probably, she was here the first probably time. Probably right. Oh, she's the most wonderful mad woman you'll ever meet. I love her to death. Haven't seen her for years either. And then there was uh, Don and Andrew in Sydney, and that was it. And then Swifty came on, and then we had oh, Ben in Melbourne. Like, God damn. That was it. That's, that was like, that's the first five of us. Yeah, that's incredible. And Swifty lives here just around the corner from me now. It's hilarious. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's a funny. Oh, the other thing I can remember is it's like, it was like having a target on my back. I must have been a novelty when I came over, like an Australian guy doing CrossFit. Yeah. I went and saw Joe Marsh at Vegas, Las Vegas. And, and after the workout, it was 4,000 degrees in the shade. He's like, my only goal was to try and make you puke. Uh, thanks, Joe. <laughs> it's just you've worked out a whole workout just for I mean, me. imagine being a games athlete and that's what everybody's doing I, I remember one time um uh the year that the year after um rich froning lost in the final in the final event when he couldn't climb the rope to um oh yeah i can remember that but i can't remember to whom oh god what's his name Jeez louise um he's a really good guy super soft-spoken from the midwest um blonde hair super nice guy but anyway if we were were live someone would be writing it in yeah exactly well we so he was coming he was coming to the gym to do a workout he had called me up in the afternoon and one of one of my members actually do you know you know armin hammer armin um armin um he does armin tv he does all kind of crossfit now he does all kinds of crossfit commentary and Another, uh, yeah, I'm sure I recognize his face. Don't know him personally. He started CrossFit in my gym. And oh, okay. um, he uh, um, he got all excited. He's like, wait, he's coming, to, he's coming to CrossFit LA. He's coming to the gym. He goes, I'm coming. I'm going to kick his ass to the workout today. I'm, you know, like everybody's gunning for these guys. Well, in yeah. the meantime, what he didn't tell us was that he's staying down at Santa Monica Beach, which is about three miles from where we were. He ran to to the gym to get here in time for the class took the class kicked armin's ass and then ran home (laughs) so you know like no no equivalence 
It's ridiculous what people can do. Technical issues are just part of the fun of remote chit chats. Graham Holmberg. Graham Holmberg. Oh, That's who it was. There you go. That was going to yeah. haunt me. It, he, I don't know where you were. Where did my story stop, drop off? I know. I think you got most of it in because we were giggling about how, <laughs> how oh, he, he ran it. Yeah, that's magnificent. Yeah. Uh, I can remember when, before it got really serious about the games and qualifi- qualifiers were all policed and they were at a stadium and, and so forth, it was run it at CrossFit Effects in Sydney, which is Steve Willis and Mick Shaw's gym. I don't even know if it still runs because Steve's off being somewhat famous about with his whole coaching and commando persona. But um, the last event was a sand dune run. Now you won't know where I'm, I'm going to talk about a place it's called Cronulla. So it's in, it's in Sydney. If you look up Cronulla sand dunes, they go like that. It's, it's ridiculous. So they mapped out this course that went up and down this sand dune three times. And people weren't prepared for it. So they turned up and they didn't know whether to run in shoes or without shoes, to run in socks. And some people ran bare feet and just shredded their feet. Anyway, we had one athlete from my gym. His name's Angus. Great, amazing guy. And he was just there to have fun. Anyway, he takes off like grease lightning from the start. And everyone's like, he's fucked. He's going he's gonna to stop. I'm like, just wait on. It looks he like the surface of the moon. I'm looking at pictures of it right now. Oh, it's brutal to walk yeah. it, right? So they ran yeah. it three times. Anyway, so Angus takes off and he's in the first or second heat and everyone's like, this kid's crazy. He's not going to do it. And he was midfield for every other event, but he just wanted to have fun. So he went out with this reckless abandon and was first place the whole time. Wow. And it wasn't until Steve got into the last... He was in the last heat and he was leading. He'd won pretty much everything. I think he won every event and he takes off and everyone's like, watch this. <laughs> so, you know, former commando, special forces, all this kind of stuff, amazing mindset. Yeah. And he just, just to watch him push himself through all that hurt was the complete polar opposite to watching Angus who smiled the whole way and enjoyed himself. But Steve was just brutal on himself and he won it by maybe 10 seconds or something. Yeah, yeah. This different experience of this same event, it was amazing. Just it's, it's amazing what you can watch people put themselves through. That's what I always enjoyed before it became really almost Olympic in the way people qualified. Less fun, more. Yeah, you, you, have, to really, you have to really go for it. You have to really be yeah. in it to win it and mm. training all year round and periodized and you know really focused you, oh, now there's something we could talk about for about three hours the periodization and versus crossfit in within crossfit i remember those arguments yeah why right. can't we have why can't we have both yeah, it was funny there's a lot of there's a lot of weird dogma do do as i do as i say not as i do you yeah. know but yeah it was it was interesting. I, I, what I like about CrossFit the most, and maybe I'll change my mind about this, was that it became a melting pot of ideas mm-hmm. towards, and it, it was 
contrary to the common, as you said, the dogma of the fitness industry, like let's try something with, with no worry about whether we were well, right or yeah, wrong. But then, it, it then, there, then, there, then it developed its own dogma. That was the difficulty. I like where it came from. Exactly. Yes. Where, which is no rules. Let's experiment, try new things. And then all of a sudden it was, don't tell me this is the way. Mm. Uh, and uh, they, they lost, I think they lost their way. I don't yeah. anyway, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a negative topic for me these days because it, it, it's done so well and so, so many good things in the world. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I, I have a hard time supporting what they're up to now. You know, although I don't really know what they're up to now. I don't really pay attention. No. I know it got sold maybe they're, maybe they're doing good management or something, but that's about it. I, I mean, I didn't know that until about a month ago that it had changed hands and Glassman yeah. wasn't running the show anymore. And Oh, I knew that because it was a big thing here. Glassman yeah, I'm, a, I'm sure it was. Glassman made a mockery, a muckery of himself. Mm. Um, well, he's, he was never one to bite his tongue when he maybe should have. But that's, no, that's, he was is what it is. Is what it yeah. is. Yeah. Anyway, you got out at, in 2014, did you say? 15, 2015. 15. Okay, and did you kick off Whole Life Challenge then, or was that already running? How did? How, no, how was that was like? pretty going. That was going strong. We um, probably 2013 is when Michael left the gym. Michael was my business partner in Whole Life Challenge, and he was my general manager. But we, the Whole Life Challenge was doing so well by 2013 that that we decided that he would go work full time Whole Life Challenge, and we'd have another new general manager for the gym. And um, and then by 2015. It was going so well that both of us decided to go full time whole life challenge. Uh huh. So, um, uh, yeah. I remember watching that grow, and I was like, like for me on the outside, that seemed really quick. I'm sure on the inside, it seemed maybe not so quick because you, you're doing all the it was, work. It was quick at first. There uh, was a lot of growth in the first like five years. A lot of doubling, and you know, um, because we were really the first we were the, really the first of its kind. There weren't, there weren't really any other organized group challenges. We built our own software, you know, nobody was doing that. And we, we did it in a way that allowed affiliates to earn revenue. So um, there was a partnership that was beyond just a partnership out of goodwill or a partnership out of, you get to see how your members are doing. You actually mm -hmm. earn money doing it. Um, probably would have done some things differently knowing now what what i know than you know what i did then the price point was so low we didn't yeah. have tiers and the price point was so low that even if you were making money the amount the little affiliate would make would be peanuts and we needed um thousands of people to really be profitable and to you know do really well and that that was the that was really the, for me, that was kind of the undoing of me in eventually in the trajectory of the business and me getting out of it and, and uh, whatnot. So are you still involved in it now? Or are you out completely from that one? I'm out. I'm, I'm still a silent partner um, okay. because when I left, it was not in a position that was, it wasn't, it, it's not, unsolvent or insolvent but uh 
given the, uns- this, the, the lack of stability that COVID brought to the world, you know, Michael really wasn't in a position to feel confident in taking out a loan to pay me to or pay me out over time. It just didn't make sense. Sure. And I didn't, I didn't want to push it because I didn't, I love the business. I love yeah. the business. I, I, it's great. It's, it's awesome. I support it still. Um, I didn't want to be a, um, you know, go. If, if I can't play in the sandbox, you can't either. You know, I didn't want to be one of those guys. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I'm still a silent partner and Michael's doing it and I'm doing my own thing now. But that was, that, that's a big story. That's, that's a long story. Go for it. Uh, this is, this whole, <laughs> these discussions about rabbit, are about rabbit holes and tangents. That's well, all it's, it's about. It's become not a tangent in my life. It's, it's become really the main story, storyline. Right. Which um, is? I, I was born a poor black child. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's a line oh. from the the jerk. I don't know I, for for anybody that's listening. I that's that's a, Steve Martin. Steve, Steve Martin. Martin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a flashback. Now we're showing our age. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, no, oh, I wouldn't be know, able to do that these days, would you? No, that, that whole I, movie would just not. I even don't be, think you could. I don't think it would stand up. I I, I don't. I, I don't well, know. I haven't watched. I it don't even. think it would get made. Yeah, I think you're right. Same with all the same with all the um, like like the Life of Brian or the what are those Monty Python the Monty Python movies maybe because it's the UK maybe they would get through oh, maybe maybe I don't know I don't they know they were all self funded um, I think Pink Floyd funded funded one of those movies really yeah wow. they couldn't get any that wasn't that was no investment from anyone else. I think it was Floyd it was one of the big bands over there that that. Wow. There were a few of there were a few big bands over there that could have done that. Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, Stones, Beatles, <laughs> Beatles, Zeppelin, all the bands. Zeppelin wasn't from England. Zeppelin's here. Is Zeppelin English? Oh yeah, maybe. No. Really? Yeah. Jesus, what's wrong with me? I, I didn't know oh. that. I thought I thought they're from here. Robert Plant is he's American. No, he's English. I'll just leave you to discover all of this yourself. Well, dude, I know you, and I know you know way more about this than I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, you have a look at have a look at the genesis of Led Zeppelin, like where it came from, and what, which bands sort of morphed and then turned into Led Zeppelin. It's an interesting. Oh wow! Like that's that's a rabbit hole, and you can you can see how it was bluesy. So the first Led the Zeppelin who, album, also. yeah, the Who at the same time, yeah, oh, the, the Who's crazy. Uh, yeah. Whoa. The Who, what a drummer! I mean, both the bands—they probably got—they're probably the two best drummers of all time. Keith Moon and and Bonzo, bloody hell! Uh, what was I going to say? So yeah, uh, the Yardbirds, and so there's Clapton's involved in the history of it, and it just uh, this Eric, uh, uh, John John Mayle, the, the Blues Breakers, all this kind of uh, English blues scene that it all referenced um, the. I guess the Delta Blues and the Chicago Blues yep. came over yep. England. Same as the Stones. They just wanted to be a blues cover band, right? Yeah. yeah. And then someone locked. I've got what they've got the book on the where is it? Can't find it. No, I've got I've got Keith Richards 
autobiography. Oh wow! Wow, it's amazing. It's you know, it's, it's a tome, but he yeah, talks right. about he talks about their manager or someone locking him and Mick in a kitchen and saying, "Write a song." Well, you can't be a cover band forever. So they wrote a song. I think they sold it to someone, and <laughs> they wrote another song. Wow! Wow! That whole band, everyone thinks it's Mick and Keith. That whole band was based on Charlie Watts, the drummer. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh. If you go and listen to the way he plays drums on Miss You and the, just the groovy, because he's a jazz drummer hmm. playing in a rock so he band. Was, he, was band. A, he was a trained jazz drummer before the Stone, before yeah, he played with He's them. probably the only true musician in the entire band. Oh, Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I mean that with all due respect because Mick Jagger is not professionally trained. Keith Richards worked it all out by himself, which is genius in and of its own way. Yeah. But, but Charlie was like that. That's the engine of the band. Wow. Yeah. See tangents. Tangents. There it is. It's where we're on them. We're on it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) On the cutting edge. If I wasn't just having random conversations with people, I'd probably have a music podcast and talk to people who know more about it than I do so I can just absorb. I love it. Yeah, that's I cool. I'm an awful musician myself. I, in fact, I can't even use the term musician. I'm a, a bedroom bassist. <laughs> just, I, I don't I dedicate bass, enough to it. I played bass Say growing again. up. I played the bass growing up as well. Oh, it's a beautiful instrument. Yeah. I played the stand-up upright. The stand-up. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Magnificent. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. I grew up as a musician. I was never an athlete or... I was uh, played a little bit of soccer, did a little bit of swimming, but um, I was a trumpet, classical trumpet player, all the way through. What an instrument! Yeah, and I played. My mom and dad were both uh, music teachers and composers and 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 uh, conductors. So everything classical. I could play. I played. I played the tuba, the French horn, the trumpet. violin cello bass piano drums um might be easy to list what you didn't play yeah i played everything <laughs> i played everything i mean i didn't play any wood triangle i always wanted to play the timpani and i never never did the timpani but um i had a drum set which i loved doing but yeah that was kind of my life growing up that was a uh, whole my parents are completely non-musical but the music that they had in the house, I always said, you grew up when the Beatles came out, when the Stones came out, when the Who came out, when Led yeah. Zepp, and you're listening to that. All we listened to in my house was classical music. So that's, I didn't that's, have- But that's brilliant. I didn't that's have cool, cool, but I, that's why I don't know where, uh, where fucking Led Zeppelin. I have no idea because I didn't listen. I didn't listen to, I didn't start listening to rock music until I was in college. That's a perfect time to discover it. It it is, but I, but that's a lot of foundational time that I missed out on, you know, my, like my wife, my wife was a, just a massive fan groupie of rock and she grew up in the Midwest. She listened. She went, she went to hundreds of concerts by the time she went to college Mm-hmm. Um, big Mellencamp fan, Bruce Springsteen fan, of course. Um, anthem like anthems, like um, the anthemic rock. Sta- yeah, and now, and now stuff. she's in the music business, so you know, like 
Bingo. She majored in exercise physiology and is in the music business. I majored in music and I was in the in the in the exercise business. <laughs> <laughs> Magnificent. When were you in college? What 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 sort of what time frame? Uh 88 to 80, 84 to 88. Oh, some good music. I mean, people, it's a much maligned decade, the 80s, but if you were into rock, gems. Gems. Yeah, let's see. Ski. I, I love. I love to listen to Squeeze and Asia, and um, where other bands? Boston mm. and uh, U two, of course. How could um, you not? Yeah, Rush, Sticks, oh, Rush. Now there's, there's another band. drummer for you. There's another drummer for you. And a bassist. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next level. Next How many three-piece bands are there? In the, I mean, not not a lot. Oh, Muse, Cream, Jimi Hendrix Experience, you, Rush. You, you might only get them on one hand. Oh, they're not. They're not a lot. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be killing killing myself later for not remembering some of them. I love a good three-piece band. Have you heard of Royal Blood? Mm -mm. All right, so check them out. Royal Blood, another English band. Two piece. It's a drummer. Wow. And the singer plays bass, but he splits his signal. So he gets sort of trebly stuff and bass stuff. Wow. Unreal. First album. Go, go and find the first they're album. Recent. They're 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 a band today. They're now. They've just released their third album. They're now. Royal wow. Blood. They're just wow. kids. They're in their twenties. They're just loving it. You gotta write that down. Yeah. Royal Blood. Royal First album is the self-titled one. Oh, I've heard it the first time. And the dude who plays drums, it's just like everything in it. Bah, 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 bah. Great. Great stuff. I have no idea what we were talking about before we started talking about music. Well, you... Where you, were we? I, I said something to the effect... I, I brought up Steve Martin. I said uh, I was born a oh. black because you were, you were asking me how, uh, you know... I said my, oh. the tangent story became the main story. Yeah. I was then, pretty much asking you your story of your life. And then we started talking about music. So I think yeah. we were about to say what's happening for you now. And you said, it's a long story. And I said, oh, I yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's see. Okay. So uh, it's interesting, you know, going through my life, the elements that were, you know, I have a lot of elements in my life. I've got the musician, I've got the Marine, I've got the, I had the um, adventure racer. I had the, you know, not just adventure racer, but adventure sports all over the place. And I had the Red Bull athlete. Then I had, you know, the Czech practitioner and then the CrossFit gym and then the CrossFit games. Like it, when I was, and, and then I got a master's degree in spiritual psychology, not when I was going through each one of these things, it, I didn't see the connections, the connection points. And I just kind of hopped from one lily pad to the next mm -hmm. and seemingly falling into things, but nothing obviously is a coincidence, but now, you know, I, I can see more clearly kind of the trajectory and how the, experiences from way back in my early days kind of have helped put me 
and make me who I am today and give me the kind of the depth and the experience um, for what I'm doing now. Cause as a, I'm a life coach now and um, I'm a life coach with a shitload of experience of life. <laughs> See, that's a unique perspective on life coaching. I think it's so funny. You know, I think you, you need great. You should have to have coaching. gray hair. I, there's so many life coaches that are in their twenties. Like what know. is going on here? How can you be a life coach when you got no life experience? <laughs> yeah. But I, I talked to a great guy uh, yesterday. His name's Ryan. So he's the episode beforehand. Uh, and he had this massive company here in Australia when I owned the CrossFit gym, but it just fell into the big pile of uh, rah, rah, rah. I can make you rich kind of stuff. And we were talking about this yesterday. And I've reconnected with him now because he was about 20 when that was happening, 20, 22, 23. And I'm like, what the fuck are you going to teach me? You know, I'm 10 years older than you, which is a little bit egotistical on my behalf, I will admit. And so I've reconnected with him now and he's done all of this inner searching and all of this work and he's in his 30s now. I'm like, ah, like I could learn from you right now. Like I can see that you have the life experience that will allow me to accept your teaching if we were to go into that kind of a relationship yeah, but right. just to talk to the guy that's I, I am yeah and back to what you said i it's i find it concerning that you can be a life coach and not know life yeah yeah there, there needs to there's be just a, a lot of various components it's like with anything i think you know you can smell out the the people that walk the talk from the people that don't and look there are people in their 20s who walk the talk there are people in their 20s of who course just, yes who just who absolutely deserve every ounce of respect for the for what yeah, they're they doing, get it. doing it and their life experience and their some people are born with it i mean shit when you look at some of the indian mystics they didn't really have to do anything to prove their uh their they just they they have an innate wisdom. They're just mm-hmm. in them. They don't. They didn't have to do anything to get that. You know. Um, that's certainly not me. <laughs> no, I'm still working at it. I'm still working at it too. I'm a. I'm, I, I tell people I'm just really, really, really slow learner. <laughs> it took me a long fucking time. <laughs> I, t- I tell people that all the time. I've got so I've got my jujitsu belts up here. That is the last three. Nice. This is this is like twenty years of my life. Yeah, right. And so there's this there's this mythology around Brazilian jiu-jitsu that's about eight to ten years for a black belt. Yep. And, and I'm close to 20 years and <laughs> I got my I got my brown belt six months ago. And everyone thank you. Everyone says to me, How long have you been doing it? And I'm like, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but it's on and off, you know, like life happened for me in the middle of it, blew a shoulder out, started a CrossFit gym, had a family, and I was never going to be a world champion competitor or anything like that. So it's never number oh, it's number one for a while and then i met my wife and it was quickly number two so <laughs> i know how that goes but that that journey yeah takes time that's why i said everyone i'm a slow learner yeah yeah no I, it's funny because when I, when I look back you know um there's so many places where i could have exited what I was doing and jumped to this path that I'm on now. Yes. Uh, And yes. 
I didn't, partly because there was no agreement in the world that that was a thing. Like that was definitely part, like that wasn't a thing. Um, and partly because I didn't, I didn't have enough trust in myself mm -hmm. yet to buy into the idea that I knew enough to be able to help other people. Um, I didn't know myself well enough. And, um, but it's something that continually called me. You know, I hired my first coach. She didn't call herself a coach. She, she ran a company called the Communication Arts Company. Um, she was this ditzy, blonde, no qualifications, no credentials. Um, she was an actress. She was a singer. And her name was Mona Miller. And uh, she was running this thing called group. And it was twice a week in person. You'd go and you'd sit in a room with 20, 30 other people, 15, 30 other people. And she would be up in front of a group and she'd be talking and she could talk. She just had the gift of gab and she was entertaining and she would tell stories and tell her own stories. But she had this way of talking about kind of reality and life and love and God and connection and what it all means. And I remember there was a therapeutic element to it all because mm -hmm. the people that were coming to the group were, were what I considered pretty fucked up. Like they were, <laughs> they had stories of, you know, rape and incest and, and abuse and alcoholism and drug, drug stuff and addiction and here I am, I didn't have any of that stuff. So I, I felt a little bit like a fish out of the water. You know, I, like I, I didn't really belong. And yet I couldn't stop going. I, 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 I absolutely loved what I was learning. I'd sit in the back and I'd take notes, you know, and I'd write my little book. I wouldn't say anything to anybody. She would call on me every now and again and encourage me to, come up and talk and I would no, and she didn't push it. And then I started seeing her privately. And uh, I remember I wanted it. I had just quit my job. I had a full-time job as a sales rep. Um, I'd become, I was working at Gold's Gym in Venice. I was making, oh, I was a massage therapist. I was making probably if I put it all together, I probably made six or $7,000 a year. And I was paying her twice a week for group, which was 35 bucks a pop. So that's 70 bucks. And then seeing her was 150, I believe. So it was every week I was laying out 200 and almost 250 bucks. And I remember wanting it more than, you know, like, not literally more than I could breathe, but that's what I wanted. That's where I wanted. That was the conversation that I was interested in having because I saw it as a path to healing whatever it was that I felt needed healing inside of me, like to learning more about myself and to understanding this, all this shit that I didn't understand about me. And um, I worked with her for years um, I probably wouldn't be married now if I didn't work with her, but I brought my wife to her. Um, 
that's a that's always a sketchy <laughs> that's a sketchy thing to bring your significant other to your she's not a therapist but to your coach you know like um was i taking her there to fix her or to get her to fix herself you know it was before the day that i realized that it doesn't take two people to to make changes you know one person has the power to change everything um and uh but she was killed in a tragic automobile accident back in 2010 um and uh in a a weird way it's like she planned it she she would talk quite a lot about you know how she's training us to be okay to do take care of our lives when she's not around you know when she's not here and she she would talk freely about death she would talk freely about dying and grief and you know um there was no fear it was always like wonder and kind of like i'm kind of excited about it you know um and uh but i that was when i uh you know look i'm in i'm in crossfit at this point you know i'm doing i'm doing all the crossfit stuff i i i had been the adventure racer i'd done all this marine corps stuff i'd healed from that you know it's kind of weird this juxtaposition between the hardcore intense guy and then this other side that cries on the drop on the drop of a you know hat and um um is very in touch with all the elements of heart and love and and spiritual context and um i had this i had this revelation at her my at her at her at her memorial service my wife and i had stopped going to her about a year before she passed because we realized we were going to her out of habit and we, our 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 sessions had turned into like tattletale sessions hmm. we'd go and we'd tell on each other julia would tell on me i would tell on her we would do nothing in between sessions we would bicker and you know fight and and life was rough and then we go to the session and we tell on each other because we were like we can't talk to each other because we just fight um if we talk to each other about serious stuff and um i remember you know the word stinginess for me is a is a is a important word because i used to wormy and stingy i would use i used to kind of worm around things like i would get myself out of talking about things that were uncomfortable because i'd somehow put it on someone else i'd give i i i i would avoid the responsibility of whatever it was i was feeling and i would i could worm my way out of a you know uncomfortableness and I was also very stingy with um, kindness and gratitude and love and patience. In, in a way, for me, it felt like if I gave too much of it, I'd run out. Like it was a finite, there was a finite resource. And um, it would also, I also remember thinking that it meant if I were to 
give in to whatever it was I disagreed with and was loving to say my wife that it would make, it would mean whatever she did to upset me. It would mean that that would be okay. And I can't do that. I mean, I can't make her feel like she's okay. And I had this revelation, this thing happened at, at Mona's memorial service. I, you know, there were 300 people there. There'd never been a real gathering of all of her people. There'd never been, you know, you didn't really, you, she would put on a seminar, but you'd have 15 or 20 people there. So there were, there were like 300 people there. And there were story after story after story about how they, how Mona touched their life and how meaningful Mona's contribution had been to their life. And, and I just remember leaving there and thinking it was this kind of vision of a, of a spring and how a spring never runs out of water. It never, it's the source. Spring is the source and Mona was the source. I get emotional when I think about it. Like it doesn't run out, mm -hmm. you know, the more, the more you give, the more you get and it just keeps coming. And it was me that had put a cap on it and had um, decided that, you know, there, that I should wait for someone else to give it first. And um, when, uh, when I left that memorial, I, that's when I reached out to uh, the University of Santa Monica, which is kind of known as the love school in, in Southern California. Their, the degree is in spiritual psychology. And I literally, I said, I don't know what I got to do to get in the next class, but I need an application and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And I, that, that was a huge turning point for me in my life, but it was a continuation from the last 12 years of studying mm -hmm. with Mona. And, and what's, uh, what's the glue that holds all of these steps together? It's, it's, uh, it's really love for me. Beautiful. I mean, it's, uh, and it's, and it's, it's weird, you know, it's, it's self love. It's <laughs> love great. of, yeah. I mean, it does. I, I used to think that, sounded selfish so i wouldn't say that <laughs> mm, no, I, I get where you're coming from but it's it's see if i have enough love like that's what i got from mona mona loved herself accepted herself she trusted herself mm. all of her craziness and wacky ways and things she did that were completely unorthodox and were you know, violated every rule about what you should do as a therapist or as a coach or, you know, anything. she would violate everything. And she just trusted in her, in herself. And that allowed that love that she had in herself to just bubble over into everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so everyone else around her had the experience of love and, and it, it just kind of propagated itself yeah. in her presence. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. That sounds like a true authentic person. But just yeah. so so intuitive and in tune with what can happen right now. But yeah. I've I've just moved back into coaching after a bit of a kick in the nuts from COVID because I had a clinical practice doing hypnotherapy and psychotherapy. And a lot of the training in and around that is about what not to do in terms of psychology, I should say, around psychology training. My teachers were amazing with what they talked about, but 
one of the things is like all about inappropriately touching people. So you get this idea that you have to be physically removed from who you're talking to. Yeah, yeah. So that's difficult because I'm a hugger. Like I want to physically comfort people and nurture them. And I worked out really early on that I attract people who are okay with that. So I had to let go of that rule set and be intuitive about who's up for a hug in a a completely appropriate way. Cause that is going to be for some people that is really therapeutic. They may not have had been held like that for a long time in a safe way. And sometimes as you were talking about with Mona, you have to break those rules or those accepted norms I mean, literally, she take broke step. every norm. She'd bring clients in. You'd be waiting for a session, and the previous client was doing whatever they're doing, and she'd, she'd open the door. She'd pick the door. Andy, you here? Yeah. Get in here. Get in here. <laughs> so I'd, go, I'd come in, and she'd put the sessions together, whether the client wanted to or not, and there'd be you know learning on both parts. She'd be hugging somebody, and you know there was no there were no rules. There were no you know she dated one of her Free. clients lunch. That was, that was a, that created quite an uproar, um, among the community. Um, but she did all, you know, she was very, she was a great example of, of being human. She was human and she taught as a human, not as a, a figurehead that is above being human. Um, and, uh, it was pretty, I was pretty lucky to have her when, when I did. Wow. That just sounds amazing. Yeah. It sounds amazing. amazing. But I mean, that theme, you know, as much as I, it was funny, it was, it took me a long time before, even after that, before I was willing to even acknowledge what the hell I was doing, you know, even look, I was, you know, I'm in CrossFit. There's no place for, I was, I was training at the Santa Monica Zen Center for seven years um, while I was running my gym, CrossFit LA. I think I started at Santa Monica Zen Center, like in 2002 or 2001. And uh, I didn't once bring meditation into the gym. I had a very, my relationship to trust in myself and what I was doing was so depressed that unless someone else told me or gave me permission or said it was the right thing to do and I saw that other people agreed I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't lead that way. You know, mm. that's why CrossFit for me worked so well in, in that I could, the people I chose to pay attention to that were doing it were my social proof that it, that it worked. And, um, but in terms of bringing in these other modalities, this, other stuff I was learning from Mona, the stuff that I was learning at the Santa Monica Zen Center, I, I, I didn't, no way. I just, and then when I got my master's degree in spiritual psychology, almost nobody at my gym knew I was even doing that. Um, it, 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 uh, and then I didn't do anything with it. You know, I, I was running the whole life challenge and I, I'm using, I was using it in my life as, you know, but to very limited degrees. Um, Can you tell me more about what you studied? Because I've never heard of that, (laughs) 
that kind of coursework. It sounds yeah. it sounds like something that I'd I'd pick up and do. Yeah, it's a uh, well, they don't offer the master's degree anymore because California changed their rules around um, offering master's degrees, and they had to get accredited. They had to get federally accredited, and mm. the rules around federal accreditation meant that they would have had to change their program in so many dramatic ways, including with testing, they decided that it wasn't in alignment with what they were teaching. And so they, they didn't do it. But really, the, spiritual, the, the curriculum is really you bring your life. You bring your life into the school. And then each weekend, one weekend a month for nine months, you study elements of spiritual spiritual psychology and really it's about communication it's about your it's about heart it's about connection it's about um um uh they're, i mean they're like 35 principles and there's lots of writing and conversations with your inner counselor and you learn how to coach others and coach yourself wow and it's a really, it's a really powerful program. I think they're doing it now online, so it is I'm available. Have to, I'm gonna have to look at it and see what, see what it's about. This yeah, blows my mind that something like that actually exists, and it's not some unknown kind of institution. That it's actually a fairly well reputed yeah. institution. Yeah, I mean, it's it's small. You know, they Small's would only good. Small's yeah. fine. No, but it's not like you know, University of Illinois. Or something like that. You know, they, I think each year they would graduate somewhere between 200 and 250 people. Mm. So, you know, it's not, it, I think they're, you know, I would, I would be surprised if more than 10,000 people have gone through their programs over the years. Um, but uh, that was, that was the groundwork. Um, and then I got a big shove from the universe that uh, a kick in the balls, like you just said. You need um, a kick in the balls sometimes. I, you know, I, w I wasn't, it wasn't that I wasn't listening. I still didn't trust. Mm. Um, and in spite of how my life kept pulling me back to this thread of personal development and self-growth and connection and love and, I continued to push forward with, you know, building a successful business, whole life challenge, you know, like, and uh, in 2019, the challenge stumbled. They, the, we, we had, we would track growth of the challenge year over year. And in 2018, we had our biggest challenge ever, or in January, we had 28,000 people in the whole life, in the January whole life challenge. Wow. That's a lot. In, yeah, it was a lot. In, in January of 2019, we had around 15,000. And it was a sudden drop-off. And, uh, you know, when we look back on it, the two things that I think that were attributable, uh, one is we stopped innovating in an outward way. We were, we, were, we were redeveloping our software. We were doing all kinds of stuff on the inside and making our systems better. But nothing that outward facing looked like innovations and change. And, and, you know, we were early on in the, in the challenge world, nobody else had a challenge when we did our challenge. 
And by 2019, everybody and their grandmother had a challenge. I mean, you could do a challenge for, you know, how many rock and roll albums can you listen to in a, in a week challenge? And how do you stop yourself from picking your nose challenge and, you know, do three push-ups a day challenge. And, and so we weren't, we didn't have competition from businesses. It was competition from everywhere. Yeah. Everyone on Facebook, you do, you have free challenge in my new Facebook group, you know? So, but what happened to me, I, I saw this big, I'd seen this need to, to shift the business for quite some time, but I didn't know how to do it. And this suddenly looked like an opportunity for me to make some big changes. Because when Michael and I look at a problem, I tend to look at it and go, let's, and say, let's go left and go around. And he looks at it and says, let's go right and go around. And um, he was kind of allowing me to lead in some of these things. And I just made some really big, overcommitted they weren't overcommitted for me because i'd been thinking about this for so long like for probably like two years they seemed right in alignment with everything i'd been thinking but they were very sudden and they pissed off my whole our whole staff they pissed off a lot of our customers we had two people leave our our team and almost a third and the third would have been the end the third she she was she was a big part of our entire marketing and development and um hate mail from you know i'm answering customer service emails by the hundreds because of the messaging that i'm doing that's just more less less peace love and more aggressive and uh nothing worked. Nothing made the, the business continued, you know, it didn't get worse, but it, it flatlined. And, um, new normal. I just, huh? A new normal. Yeah. But the die was cast for me inside. Uh. I, uh, I just started to implode. I, I just, um, so much of my self-worth was based on me succeeding and winning and, and having the answer, if I, if I wasn't winning, figuring it out mm. and trusting that I knew how to get there, I, everything has always worked. Had Up till that point in my life, everything had always worked. And um, I started having panic attacks. I started having, you know, anxiety and, um, you know, stuff that I had studied I had worked with people, you know, in my spiritual psychology degree who had had similar things. I knew how to coach people through it, but I didn't know how to empathize with people because I had never been through it. And um, it was, it was a massive shift inside for me. I, you know, talking about humble pie, um, you know, you can't just shake off a panic attack. At least I couldn't. At least I couldn't. You know, I couldn't just shake off anxiety. And that was kind of the, I would say that was really the mindset I had. I, I, I also didn't have an appreciation for the level of difficulty others faced in life and how you know, like my mom, when she 
left my dad, who was an alcoholic, my whole upbringing, she basically put her life on the line. I mean, put her, our whole life, she, my dad wouldn't leave the house. So she moved out with us, didn't have a place to go. We moved into a farmhouse for like two months. Then we moved into the basement of another friend's house for two or three months. I don't really remember feeling like anything was really wrong. Um, I can, I mean, and I never really thought about how she must've been Mm. feeling and how she was doing all that. And uh, so there, there was a deepening of a connection that I got from that experience with other people, just an appreciation of other people and their plight and their struggles. And, um, and when I, when I went to go back to the whole life challenge, I couldn't, I just couldn't find my way back. I, I, I did not want to have to worry about numbers and lots of people, thousands of people playing the game. I didn't want to have to worry about marketing and, I went back. I, the only thing that really resonated for me was to continue doing the work that I had started with Mona and um, do it with others. Hmm. And um, it took, I, I feel like a little bird that was pushed out of the nest. It, it took that event to happen to allow me to be willing to declare, oh, yeah. I can do this. I've been doing this for 20 years. I, I just don't give myself any credit. Like I'm not Mona, you know, in my mind, if I'm not the exalted one, then I'm not good enough. And um, so I was never the exalted one. So I'd never be good enough. So without that push, I probably would never have um, gone down this path. Mm. It's, that's such a beautiful story, and I don't think it's I don't think it's a rare story. I'm, I could I think ninety five percent of that's my story in some way. Yeah. But literally, getting to get over myself and be okay with titles that I don't like because that's what someone else wants to call me. Like when I was a gym owner, I didn't want to be called a personal trainer, but everyone thought I was a personal trainer, so I just had this hang up on. I don't want to be associated with that, but the world thinks I'm that and that's okay. And then I've been using the word coach for a long time and not in this sort of sports coach, high school coach kind of way. But when I left CrossFit, I moved into business coaching almost by accident because people were asking me, how do you create a gym? What do you have to do? And I didn't know what I was going to do. So I thought, well, I still get to work with people and make a difference. So I moved into that. I'm a coach, but I don't like business coaches generally because it's a whole lot of hyperbole and bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I worked out, oh, I'm actually doing therapy here. So I move into therapy after studying NLP and finding out that I knew hypnosis already and then deep diving hypnosis, I go and become a hypnotherapist and I, oh, fuck, I'm a therapist now. Do I want to call myself a therapist? So you can see the theme, right? Yeah, Everyone right. else thinks I'm a therapist. How dare I call myself a therapist? I don't even know if I'm doing therapy. And then all of a sudden people were coming to me and saying, you fixed shit that, and I don't think I fixed it. They fixed it. That's, that's what I, I'm just facilitating it. That's the way. Yeah, right. I, right. 
but they're telling me, oh, you fixed something that's been here forever. Like one of my first clients hadn't slept well for 40 years, like complete insomniac, one session, best sleep of his life, continues to wow. do so today. I'm like, what the fuck's happening? Am I good at this shit? Maybe I am good at this shit. Okay. And then that, that got kicked in the balls because of the lockdowns and uncertainty and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, well, what am I going to do online? And that was, this is what the parallel where you've worked out, you were doing something for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I've been doing wellness for 20 years, just in different, like when I was 16, I started teaching martial arts when I was learning martial arts. So I've been doing it for almost 30 years. Wow. Well, I, okay. So I do wellness and I do wellness really fucking well. Yeah. Yeah. So how about I stop telling myself that I'm not good enough. Right. And I'll just tell everyone I'm a wellness coach and even because that explains what I do to a certain degree or it piques someone's interest and not from a marketing perspective because I fucking can't stand all that stuff. But if someone's interested in wellness and interested in having a Sherpa, then maybe I'm their guy. Maybe not. But then I can, I can stand inside that space now. And I can. The story of I'm not good enough. I mean, the reason I think that our stories are so aligned is that's really the story. I mean, that's really the story. That's the story of humanity. It's I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Self-doubt. Yeah. Yeah. We all, we all have it. It's, and it's funny. We don't necessarily stumble upon the fact that we're all living with the same inner story, the same inner dialogue. Um, And uh, it's an, it's an epidemic, but it's, but it's built into the mechanism. It's built into, it's built into being human. It's kind Mm -hmm. of what it means to be human. In a way, you will experience self-doubt. You will experience I'm not enough. You will experience I'm not worthy because it's preloaded. Yeah, it's almost like seeing through the matrix, isn't it? You work that out and it's still going to be there, but you know it's going to be there. And then maybe you have some tools or some support structures to allow you to work through it. Yeah, but it affects every part of it affects every part of your life. It's funny, like I had a client the other day who came, not the other day, but I've been working with for a short period, like three months. And uh, she came to me because she wanted to work out why she was so dissatisfied with her job. And, and, and more importantly, not why, but she wanted to create, like I don't really work with people on answering questions why only. I work with people on creating the life that they really want and creating the job that they really want or the career that they really want the why becomes a interesting element. It's important to, it's important to know why, but I think in therapy, very often you get stuck in looking at the why. Becomes forensic. Yeah, we're in, we're in coaching. You might dive into the therapeutic part of the why, but the power comes in creating in the creation of the being and then doing and then having. And uh, so she thought the whole, you know, we were going to spend three months together and build a new career for her and figure out, you know, kind of where she was going to go. And it, it just went really deep, really fast. And she's working on things right now. This is in the first three months of us working together. Things she's been in therapy for 10 years and not been able to really move the needle in any meaningful way in terms of her parents or relationships or her her 
Um, and things are flooding in for her. Like the, the, this idea, you know, one of the first things I told her is you got to start telling the truth. And she's like, what do you mean? I don't lie. I'm like, well, yeah, you kind of do. <laughs> we all do. We all do. Like we, we hide the truth from ourselves because the truth is too unbearable mm-hmm. to face. Not so ready we, for it yet. Yeah. We mask it in, in, in blaming, in saying I'm, I'm, I'm in justification, in mm-hmm. rationalization. And uh, so as we start to peel away the layers, you know, um, it's funny. Every now and again, that question of what am I going to do for my career pops in. And she's like, should I be working on that? Uh, this, this stuff, this other stuff feels so much more important. Um, but I really want to know what I'm going to do with my career. Maybe we should start working on that next time. <laughs> I'm like, I got a reminder. You are working on that. That, that this yeah. is like the, this is the matrix, the underlying operating system that's going to affect everything. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, but it's the, it's the OS that we're all built on, you know, and, sure, and sure. it's, it's fun to, it's fun to play in that arena. Yeah. And it's, it's important that when you find these people who want that help, that they understand this is not about what you will do and the exact steps that you will take to get to where you're going to get to, we need to find out about you and work with what you've got now. And yeah. then, then it's process and practice. It's not just, okay, here's step one. And then here's step two. And these work for everyone. Well, that's why I don't have a system. You know, I don't have a method, the Andy Petronic method or the Andy Petronic system, or these are the five steps you take because everybody's coming at this, even though we're all operating with the same story, underlying story, we're all coming about it with a very different life experience. And yes, um, yes. I haven't really, I, I'd love to come up with a way to systematize or to work with small groups. I just haven't yet. I haven't really wanted to. I really enjoy working one-on-one with people. Um, but so if you've got a gift in flowing with that kind of stuff, then that, that's what you embrace. Yeah. And, and that, and your system is, you don't have a system. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And right. I think that's brilliant. My I, niche. It's funny. Somebody, I just real quick, somebody, uh, you know, people ask, well, what's your niche? You know, have you, have you made people. it? Really I'm like, do you have a life? Yeah. Are you breathing right with, now? I work with people that have a life. <laughs> I was, they, see, that, and that's one of the really interesting things. So when I did all this marketing study and about client avatars and messaging and all this kind of stuff, even when I was at the gym, I struggled with who that person would be because I don't know. I'm creating, yeah, right. a, I'm creating a container that will attract a certain kind of person, but I don't know because, and I would work with business coaches and they'd say, well, give me a sample of your clientele. And I, like, well, there's a dentist who's 65. There's a mother of three who's currently unemployed. There's an 18 year old boy who doesn't know how to tie his shoelaces. Like there's, there's no common denominator. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same. So I don't have a, I have what I call a framework, but it's not, it's not a system. Yeah. So I've got, I've got like three pillars, which give people something to think about or consider or sit with. So I talk about openness, openness, 
uh, mindfulness and resilience. And then there's sort of sub, you know, additional words under that. Yeah. The words just to guide, like, are you doing well here? And maybe not so well there. So you can start to see where do you want to make some adjustments in your life? Because often yeah. that question, often people say something's going wrong and I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my step through the doorway is, well, I don't have ayahuasca with me at the moment. So let's find another doorway into the work. Yeah, right. yeah that's a, that's a new, that's a new thing for me, actually. I, I uh, did my first psilocybin uh, journey in the middle of COVID. That, that was a did, funny Did story. you do a heroic dose? I don't, you know, it's funny now that I've done, I've done like five journeys and I don't mm -hmm. really know yet what heroic dose means. I mean, they think they say, you know, six, anything over five grams could be considered heroic, but mm. so I've done that. I've definitely done that. Oh, well, there you um, go. But I also wonder, I haven't really varied the dosage. I've done about six, I do about six and a half grams every time I've done it. Um, I wonder what 10 grams would feel like. And I wonder what three grams would feel like. And I just mm. haven't played with that yet. Um, and it's a lot about what you bring in and where you're at when you have that yeah. experience, who you're with, yeah. the physical environment around you. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm investigating yeah. micro dosing at the moment. So cool. it's something I'm looking into. Haven't started, but it's very, yeah. it's intriguing. It's intriguing to see it open the little, open the crack yeah. a little bit further. It took me about a year and a half before I decided to say, yes, I wanted to try it. I, I had lots of conversations with friends who had experience doing it and Lots of reading, you know, Michael Pollan's book was really helpful. Ah, yes. Lots, lots of podcasts, you know, one of the podcasts that was really influential was um, Joe Rogan had, um, what's the guy's name? He wrote a book that I would never read because it's way too dense, but he, he was research, researching the history of religion and uh in, oh, is, this, in, is this the guy that was doing that Jesus was a mushroom type thing? I don't think so. There were, there, there, there's this theory about Jesus actually being a uh, like a persona of the the trip state, something like that. And it was the, <laughs> no, this this guy this guy is a very so he's never done a psychedelic journey. The author of the book, he's researched okay. for like 15 years. Right. Um, he's a sure you're talking scholar. About. Yeah, he's a scholar. It's a, it's a. I don't have the book because I'm not. This is not a book I'm going to read. It's very dense. It's a very dense book. But he did all this research into the origins of religion and the and the you know like, and and he put together a lot of physical evidence of of marijuana of you know thc of, of of like remnants of that in in uh in various temples and various places mm -hmm. in the old world and you know like what was in that incense that they swing around in the catholic church and what was in the eucharist what was in the wine because they talk about it being wine they also talk about it being beer and and there's elements in the in the jars from the you know, the clay pots they used mm -hmm. to use of 
of uh, psilocybin, of mushroom, you know, like, so what were they really doing? <laughs> so they were taking the sacrament, you know? Um, I have no doubt that it had some plant medicine in there somewhere. All of, all of these religions uh, yeah. in, the, in the ancient times, maybe not so much now in the modern times. But well, there's just no so many, there are just so many unanswerable questions. Like, why do all the religions all over the world have the same imagery? Mm-hmm. Why do we, why do, you know, from, from thousands of years ago, and then you got all this stuff around the, the age of the pyramids. And first of all, how were the pyramids even possible? Um, that's just mind bending. Yes. Um, and, and then all the, the other evidence around the world of these ancient structures that, that just, if you, if you believe in the, um, the, the, the theory that man just evolved linearly, um, like science would tell you, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it literally doesn't make any sense. So I became very intrigued by that. There's something that I, that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And look, it falls right into the category of there's something about me. I just don't know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I, when I made the, when I made that connection, I called I've, I've this friend of mine um, lead, who leads journeys. I that day I think I called him. I'm like, dude, I'm in the next one. The next one you do, I'm in. And then then I had to then I had to talk to my wife about it. And that was a whole holy shit. That was tough because you know if you grew up if you're our age and you, well you didn't grow up in the United States, but when we were we were just subjected to the war on drugs. Say no to drugs. I mean, it was beaten into us and every drug's the same. And they're all, that's the the difficulty. Yeah. They're all highly addictive, you know, whether it's methamphetamines or it's, or it's marijuana or it's Mm -hmm. LSD or it's psychedelic, you know, it's uh, mushrooms. They're all the same. They're all dangerous. They're all class one. Yeah. And, um, you know, she had, visions of me becoming an addict and coming home with half my teeth missing. And I mean, it was really, it was really dramatic. And I look, I had a lot of compassion for that because I started with the same idea a year and a half before, before I read any of these books or listened to any of these podcasts, it was, I'm like, really? Like when Tim Ferriss first started talking about using psychedelics, I just would stop listening to the episodes. I didn't, no, not going to go there. That's not for me. I don't do drugs. I that's, you know, <laughs> lo and behold, I do. <laughs> yeah. But she, that's the, and again, we're getting back to words, right? It, that one word doesn't describe it. So no, when I, no. when I talk to people who do this, we talk about plant medicine because we know we're talking about something that is not heroin, yeah. crack yeah, we or do, any we of that kind too. of stuff. That's what, that's what we do too. But I didn't have that context back then. No, we, but we did. Yeah. You and I both didn't have that language. No, no. And like I've, I've dabbled in quite a few different bits and pieces over time. And the only stuff that is of any interest to me now is plant medicine. I have no interest in recreational use of anything. No, it's, just, I, yeah. it's not attractive to me. I was but done yeah. that, been there, understand how it flows, not part of my life anymore. And that's where I think we need to be able to say, this is recreational drug use and this is medicinal I'll say drugs, medicinal, medicinal drug use, because, you know, even when we talk about pharmaceuticals, we use the word drugs. 
it's just it's a bad label because they're not all the same. Well, there's so there's so much in the world right now that is difficult to to put together in a sensical way. Um, you know, when you have When the, when the overwhelming evidence around around the use of, of um, MDMA and psilocybin for PTSD and treating veterans is overwhelmingly positive, mm-hmm. and you still have the the mainstream, you know, not un- unwilling unwilling to look at it because they're they're drugs, and yet they're prescribing. Oxy, what is it? What is it? Oxycontin, oxycodone, oxycontin. Yeah, oxycontin. I always get that mixed up. Oxycontin. Yep. Um, you know, and and highly addictive substances that are killing people. You know, it just doesn't make sense. And the same thing with the with the money, vaccine. Money, money, the, money, money. Yeah, the same thing. Same with the vaccine, and you know, the guys who are on the board of a company like Monsanto, and they're all the same people. Mm. And there, how do you resolve? There's so many unresolvable questions around the trustworthiness of yes. the people that are leading our our world, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't know where their real motivations lie. And you know, I mean, you do that makes it but, makes it really you know. difficult to make an educated decision. And then if you don't toe the line you're seen yeah. as being contrary or an anarchist or something like that. Yeah. 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 And we're, we're having that discussion here where if you question what the government is putting out in and around vaccines, infection rates and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying what's right or wrong because I, I don't know enough about it. Yeah. Yeah. But to question it is seen as being outside other if yeah. you ask a question, you're an anti-vaxxer or something like that. Now, I ask questions because I'm curious. Yeah, right. And if you can come back to me and tell me that this is the path because, okay, yeah. Show me the proof. I want to know yeah. what it's all about. Then I'll reconcile it myself and see if that fits my value structure. And then I can make a decision. But like, for example, we have, I'm in, I'm in Noosa, which is an hour and a half north of Brisbane, which is the third largest city in Australia. Okay. It's a holiday uh, tourist place. There's mm-hmm. 12 to 20,000 people here. It's small. It's regional. We have no active, I oh know we have some active but isolated cases of COVID, like less than 100 in the state. Mm-hmm. It's minuscule. And yet we have a mask mandate at the moment here in Noosa where no one, there is no one on the Sunshine Coast, which is the greater regional area mm-hmm. that currently has COVID or any symptoms of, unless of course we don't know because they haven't been tested, which is quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. But we're expected to wear masks when we go out, but the, the, but the mandate is very confusing about whether you need to wear it when you're by I've, I've read the government website and on the same page, it says you must wear a mask outside. You don't have to wear a mask when you're walking with family outside. So are you telling me I have to wear a mask by myself when I'm outside, but not when I'm with other people, when 
it's transmittable person to person. When I go to my local, when I go to my local cafe, I'm supposed to wear the mask up to order my coffee. But when I sit down with my coffee, which can still be within the same area, not, not space, no social distancing, really. Then you can take it within. Then I can take my mask off and drink my coffee. It's just, just, and it's ludicrous. And I understand because I've read some of the science about this that the, the the right type of mask does prevent the spread at to to a degree. There's a percentage reduction in spread of yeah. the viral component. But most people are wearing masks that are single use, that don't work the second time, or yeah. they've gone and bought comfortable fabric masks which don't work anyway. I don't know if my fabric mask, I wear fabric masks. That's all I wear. I won't do the plastic. I don't really like throwing shit away. And they're no, full of course of, not. They're, they're full of microplastics and you know, yes, so you're inhaling I, microplastics. Yeah. So but I have fabric to ask these masks. questions. I have no idea. I have no idea oh, if they yeah. work. Whatever. No, but they but they a lot of the masks that people wear that are single use, like the efficacy of the yeah, the efficacy is like 20% anyway. And then the second use it's zero. Yeah, right, right. So it's kind of like the old virtue signaling that I'm wearing a mask, therefore I'm safe. Yeah, yeah. Now, if we're doing that just to prove that the government knows, or I should say is seen to be doing something, then we're missing the point. Yeah, right. right. We need to, why are we doing it? Now, I, I, if I was living in Melbourne and it's dense and there's, that's where I used to live and we're all right next to each other in a train and we're all wearing the same masks, I think that makes perfect sense. Yes, 100%. 100%. So but there's so much confusion. In, and I'm in a small population. There's a lot of people who are out on the fringe. Well, I think the other piece that you said was really important. That if we were to track death rates in the world for cancer or heart disease, the way we're tracking COVID, mm-hmm. people would be as afraid of those diseases as they would be of COVID. They'd be afraid of... Now, they're different because you, you can't catch them but way more people are dying of them and way more people can do they're preventable yes but we just don't pay attention we just they just don't they get shelved i mean look i think the fourth leading cause of death is mistakes from i can't there's a word for it but it's mistakes prescriptive mistakes surgery mistakes getting an infection in the hospital during you know like Mm. they have nothing to do with the original um reason that you were in the hospital um fourth like the fourth leading cause of death we don't pay any attention to that no so you know this idea that we're all up in arms around covid it is starting you know look i'm vaccinated i towed the line i didn't want to create a problem for my family and and the the, the families that we interact with and I uh, decided that I wasn't going to make a stink or, but if, I think if I had been single and healthy, probably wouldn't be vaccinated. Um, but it's starting. I, I very much relate to a lot of the reasons why people who are not vaccinated are not getting vaccinated. I very much relate. I don't, I don't have an againstness. I had an againstness for a while when I first got vaccinated. I'm like, what's wrong with these people? Everybody should just get vaccinated. The whole problem will go away. And uh, now, hmm, I'm like, huh? Yeah. Well, see, even that one's interesting, right? Because there's information coming out that the vaccines don't necessarily prevent transmission. Yeah. 
Right. I know. And, or, 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 or uh, what is it? Uh, contraction or whatever it is. What, what, I'm clearly not a virologist or really understand this, which is, you know, that, that's my caveat when I talk about it. I'm not an expert. I'm trying to work my way through it. Yeah. So my, my concern is in Australia, there's this mythical idea. It was 80%. When we get to 80%, we're just going to open things up and away we go and it's all going to be okay. And then they dropped it to 70%, which is like an economic decision because also there's going to be a, a riot at some point in Melbourne or Sydney where they're still locked down. But what happens when everyone... You mean 80% vaccinated or 80%? Yeah, 80% of the population vaccinated. That's a big number. Well, they're at 33, 34 at the moment. And yeah. it's going up in like 1% a day. Right. We've, got a small, we've got a small population, yeah. relatively, relatively speaking. But then Delta comes out and then there's another, another variant has come out. Now, if they avoid the vaccination, then we've gone down this path of vaccination and we're all still susceptible. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the kind of stuff I want to know about. Like, okay, I'm happy to consider all of this kind of stuff, but what if? I heard an interview with a virologist uh, the other day. It was a very short clip and I don't know if, how credible it is, but he said, you know, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, you can't, you can't out vaccinate a disease because the, it becomes a race ah, to see who it's can. A, it's, a, it's an arms race. It's an arms race. Because the minute you come out with a vaccination, the virus starts working on a workaround for the vaccination. Yeah. And it comes up with a variant. And, and then you've got to come out with another vaccination for the variant. And then the vaccine, it goes, so if you don't, you know, they're, they're, you just can't win that way. It's mm -hmm. an unwinnable um, assessment. And he said, it's very basic virology. Like everybody knows that. It, it's, uh, I mean, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Um, but that's not my job. <laughs> so, so, um, but yeah, no, it's. I just hope we get through it and work out a way of not. Will. We will get through it somehow. Oh, you know? Yeah, we will. But my concern is for that there is a possibility of a fracture in society and us versus yeah. them mentality. And yeah. we've seen that go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, the last big war was because of that. It was us versus them. Mm-hmm. And even the smaller wars since then, it's us versus them. Yeah. Yeah. And if this is almost ideological already, yeah, that's when it gets, well, that's when I, I don't want to use the term, but it gets scary in, to my mind. And I yeah. hope that we can work out a way that, you know, we can work through this together. Well, it's only scary, a, Adam, if you fear death. Well, true. I, I'm talking. I'm not. Talk yeah, I'm death. not even talking about death. I'm just talking about the way society. But what are you actually afraid of? What is it you're actually like when you say it gets scary? What is the fear? Of the ex I guess it's the experience of what can change. It's the unknown. I, my my theory on fear is all human fear is the fear of the unknown. We walk well, into a dark. Ultimately, is ultimately is death. I think. Well, it's, it's the ultimate unknown. So you could yeah. you could say that for sure. But so I say to people, if you're scared of going into a dark room, you're not scared of the dark. You're scared of not knowing what's potentially in the dark. 
mm-hmm. if you're scared of making the next step in your career, you're not scared of making the next step because you've done that before. You've got a job at the moment or you're in a position at the moment. You know what it is to take the position. You're scared of what might happen and you are unsure and uncertain. And that is an unknown. Yeah, which and yeah. I, so which I think the, the antidote, if there is one, for anyone, for people listening, is we may go into a period of real unknown, uncertainty. Mm. And I think we are. You've got to go, you've got to go back inside yourself and trust, like self-trust that you've got it. You've got whatever it takes to solve whatever problem life throws at you at that moment. And if it means you're, um, it's the lack of trust that causes anxiety, worry, fear, doubt. Um, and, uh, it's, it's not required it's really not required i love it i love it let's wrap this up on trust all right because i don't think we can get a better message to go out with i think if anyone picks up on like trust yourself to start with then wonderful and, and, and I think it does go to the, this fear of, of death and dying. And I, I think that's an important, um, it's, it's an important topic to not be afraid of, of talking about and addressing and looking at and um, knowing, you know, I have an inner knowing now that, that this is just a stop on the on the journey, you know, like I'm here to learn as much as I can until I can't anymore. And then it's time to go and um, I'll miss things, but it's probably way more wonderful on that side. Well, so you want to find out the way it's going home. I'm not doing that on purpose anytime soon. That's for sure. No, no, no. <laughs> Still too much juice here. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. So good to reconnect with you, Andy. Thank it's you so much for your time. I love the meandering. Yeah, well, I hope we can do this even without the record button pressed and just stay connected because it's been way too long. Yeah, it really has. Really has. Um, And to have these relationships, you know, with people that are how many thousand or 12,000 miles away? I don't know how many fucking thousand miles. It's a long way. A a lot. It's a big swim. (laughs) It's a big swim. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think there's some CrossFitters who are doing some sort of a wreck, like, um, Brian Chantosh, who's married to Nicole, um, doing training for some big old crossing of something. I don't know what the hell it is. Yeah, it's not my. It's not my. I'm not. I'm not swimming to you anytime soon. That's for damn sure. No, no. Let's not even think about meeting in the middle. I'll I'll swim in the into the quantum field and meet you. All right, we'll do that. I'll tell you about. I'll tell you about my uh, quantum journey next time we talk. Breathwork into a quantum journey. That's really? serious shit right there. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. Oh yeah. Doorway is like <laughs> e- 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 e. third eye. Boom. Wow. Yeah. F- for next time. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs>